Our reading this morning is taken from the book of Ephesians and starting chapter 4 at verse 17 and it can be found on page 978 in the Black Bibles. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned in Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. The word of the Lord. I'm Ryan Phelps. I serve here as uh, lead pastor Thankful for smart people. Our system this morning, we came in and it just would not turn on our sound system. That's fun. But they were able to, Joe and uh, Josh were able to piece it together. So we do have sound today. Thank you to them. Uh, we have been in a series on the book of Ephesians for the last couple of months. We are into chapter four now. This is kind of the second half of the, the book of Ephesians. And we're in the thick of it. And it's really excellent, good stuff. And today we have some work to do. These are some. Uh, challenging verses that we must prepare for. So let's pray before we get to it. Seek the Lord and his wisdom. God, thank you. You have brought us out of darkness and into light. You have given us your spirit, and now you long for us to be receptive. May we not quench your spirit. May we be receptive to what you have for us. God, may our hearts not be callous. God, there are things that you need to teach us this morning. There are areas in our life, dark areas in our life, that must be exposed to your light. Would we release? Would we let go? Would we rest in your sovereign will and stop holding on to the life of our former selves? God, we are grateful to you that we are even in this place at all. We know we live by grace. We've been saved by grace, live by grace, and will be held in grace. And so we say thank you and we praise you. And in this time, would you be glorified? In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the work of the Holy Spirit, to your great name, amen. So have you ever eaten a food that has changed your life? I'm not joking. Anyone? It's a food that changed your life. Maybe you don't understand what life change means. I just mean that you look at everything differently after you have something happen to you. But this, I'm talking about food now. Food is good, but especially when you happen upon certain food that you did not know exist before. Maybe it was prepared in a way that you didn't know could be prepared that way. When you tasted it, when it hit your tongue, you swallowed it down, you, you have to close your eyes, it just happens on its own, you close your eyes and, and you say to yourself, I've never had anything like that before. What is this? What have I been missing? 
For me, it was a waffle. This is what changed my life with food. It was a waffle. Now, it was a waffle in Paris, okay? It was at the, the famous museum, the Louvre Museum. Now, I've had thousands of waffles in my life, maybe millions, I don't know. And I love waffles, but usually they're like Waffle House waffles or Denny's waffles. Well, for some reason, maybe I thought it was funny. I don't even actually remember. We were in this cafe inside the Louvre. We'd just seen the Mona Lisa, and we are sitting down to lunch, and I saw a waffle on the menu in French or something. And I thought, well, that's kind of hilarious. I'm going to eat the waffle. It's like it said waffle with cream. And man, I have never eaten anything so good in my life. I took that first bite and I was transported into some alternate food heaven dimension that I've never been in before. And I'm not kidding, my life was changed. I didn't know that food could be that good. I thought that I had reached the peak of waffles, and I had not. Every food now is compared to that experience. Is there a food that did that for you? Or maybe not a food, maybe just an experience in your life. Everyone has that. They open us up. They transport us. They raise our minds and our thoughts. I had no idea life could be like that. A painting that makes our hearts soar. A piece of music that raises our affections. A scene in nature that makes us sing internally and maybe externally. A career that we find that fits perfectly with our gifts and our joys. A love that melts our hearts a newborn baby that sends our souls over the moon. There are things in our lives that just change us. We will never be the same. Once we have discovered and experienced these things, our lives are forever altered. How did we ever live before? The Bible puts something forward that's audacious, maybe even arrogant. The greatest joy the greatest thing that you will ever experience is finding God in Christ. And it posits this, that if you come to God and know Him and believe Him and trust Him, if you give your life to Him, it will change literally everything. Waffles just change a tiny part of my life. The Bible says that God will change everything. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Does that describe your life? Does God, does he shine in such a way that everything else is in conjunction with it? Is in juxtaposition to him, is illuminating everything because of him? The problem, I'm going to raise a problem, is that though many have seen the Son, though many have known God and trusted Him at some level, they do not also see everything by Him. They have not completely let it affect their hearts, their lives, their walk in this life. Paul's point in the text this morning is that we cannot live this way, though it is a possibility. It is a possibility to know God and not know God. To know that He is there and not live as though He is there. And so Paul says, you cannot live this way. 
You have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You must now walk in line with this. You must have your very mind renewed as creation, as new creation. We must live in the newness of our salvation. As we take stock of our own lives this morning, we must remember the Son. We must remember God. He illuminates everything. He has changed our lives. Ephesians 4, 17-24. I have three points to help us through this morning. Ephesians 4, 17-24. Here are the three points. I'll say them again. Alive to God, callous in sin, and renewed in Christ. Alive to God, callous in sin, and then finally renewed in Christ. So the first one, alive to God. Alive to God. So if you remember back, Ephesians 4, 1 said something interesting. It said this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Do you remember that? And I said at the time that this was really a a kind of a, a middle section. It was a break. He's changing the way he's tackling things now. He was talking about doctrine, and now he's talking about the practice of Christianity, the practice of walking with God. He's been talking about all the things that you have in Jesus Christ, and now how do you live in light of that? That's the section that we're in right now, and Ephesians 4.1 says it. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Start acting like it. Start living in line with your new calling. And then verse 17 actually echoes that. It repeats it, but in a negative way. It says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. You must no longer walk. So verse 1 says, Walk in line with your calling. Now verse 17 Do not walk as you once did, as the Gentiles did. Now, walking meant living, of course. Walking meant every part of your life, the thoughts that you had, the words that you spoke, the decisions that you would make. He says, if you want to be a Christian, then you must no longer be a Gentile. Now, that's kind of interesting to me because He's talking to a bunch of Gentiles, right? This is really a a letter to them. This is to the Gentile people. So he's not actually telling them that they must forsake their heritage or their race or their culture. He's telling them something very specific. Do not live as though there is no God. Do not live as though you have not been called out of darkness and into the light. Do not live as though you have not seen and known and tasted and felt the great majesty and power and grace of the Lord of hosts. Do not live as you you used to. Verse 17 again. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their mind, They are darkened in their understanding. Now listen, alienated from the life of God. Now that is what it means. That is what he means when he says, you cannot walk as the Gentiles did. Don't change your race, don't change your culture. But now you know the Lord. Now you can walk with him. Do not live as though you used to be alienated 
from the Lord. For Paul, there is nothing worse than being separated from the very life of God. I like to think of the life of God as a flowing river. The life of God is a flowing river. For years and years, we trudged in our lives through brutal terrain, over hills, down into valleys, and we were so thirsty. And then we came upon it. We came over that last hill by His grace, and we saw it. Finally, the river of life, free-flowing and clean. We had no idea it even existed, and yet there it is, far more beautiful, far more powerful, far more precious than anything that we could have imagined. And it beckoned us, come and drink. When Christ sweeps us up into his great mercy, he says, go out onto the river. Go out, be carried by it, be satisfied in it. Let it bring you rest and joy. That is how life was always meant to be lived. Psalm 1611 says this. This is one of my favorite verses. It's a life verse. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is the life that we have been called to. Pleasure upon pleasure, happiness upon happiness, joy upon joy. The problem is is that Gentiles do not always live that way. Gentiles who are Gentiles by race or by culture and heritage sometimes also go back to living as though there is no God. He says that when they were alienated from the life of God, They were living in the futility of their minds. Do you see that phrase there? The futility of their minds. It is like a dead end of their souls. It says they were darkened in their understanding. They didn't even know that he existed. Without the knowledge, they were lost. Without the knowledge of grace and Christ, they were ignorant. They did not know the Lord. They did not know his life. They did not know what he could mean to them. But it was deficient. It was deficient. Maybe you have heard of Plato's allegory of the cave. This is helpful to me. Now, he was talking about philosophers, but I think this is life. I think this is life with God. Plato was the famous philosopher, and he used, he spoke through Socrates, and he had Socrates tell this story, this allegory of the cave. And it's kind of morbid, it's kind of dark, but it's about these people who are born into captivity, and they are literally born into chains. They are chained up against the wall, so all they can see is a blank wall in front of them. They are born into this, and this is how they live their entire lives. Now, they don't just see the blank wall. They also see something else bouncing off the wall in front of them. Behind them, what they don't know is that there is a fire. And in front of that fire are walking other people, free people. And so the fire shows over, shows over the people onto that wall in front of them. And so they see shadows bouncing back and forth. Now Plato was talking about knowledge. He was saying that the person who does not open his mind, who does not become a philosopher and dig deeply, that is how they live. All they know is those bouncing shadows. 
But when they free themselves, when they free their minds, they get out and they turn around and they see that there are people there, that there is a fire, and they begin to see life as it truly is. But before that, they are just inmates. They don't even desire to leave their prison, for they know no better life. Maybe Paul might say they were darkened in their minds. But then they are released. They see what is truly their life is not just shadows. There is so much more. Now again, Plato's story is about a philosopher. But this must be used for us too. It must be used as an allegory for those who have not truly seen and known God. We are born in sin, the Bible says. We are born into slavery. We are born, in a sense, not really knowing any better. We do not truly understand God. Yes, Paul says in Romans 1 that there is some knowledge just by nature. We can know that God exists. But it is like knowing a painter via his paintings, like knowing a, a person, a, a composer via his compositions. That is partly who he is, partly who she is. But it is only partial knowledge. They are only but shadows. What is needed, what is required, is that we know that person personally. And so with God. And we see him we know him for the first time. We know his love and his forgiveness. What happens is that it is terrifying. Is it, it, is, it is exposing to have our lives put up against God's. But yet amazingly, it is at the same time peaceful and wonderful to be awakened to life with God, to turn around and see that they are not just but shadows, but there is a God in this universe who is creating everything, who has created us and loves us. My favorite illustration of this are the videos of the people who get their hearing for the first time. Maybe you've seen this. Do yourself a favor. Take five minutes today. Go look up woman hears for the first time. These are people who literally have never heard anything their entire lives. And then they get a pretty intensive surgery that implants some sort of device in their ear. And then they sit with a nurse. And they have a video, a camera on them. And the nurse says, okay, I'm going to turn it on. And she does. And it's just, there's, nothing, there's no describing it. Because it's first a smile. And then it sobs. Sobs of joy. I might describe it as magic. Magic. Have you known God like that? Have you known, have you seen and heard and felt the sweet and powerful presence of the King Jesus? Have you been awakened to him in a way that says, I did not know it could be like that? And there's always a rub. There's always a rub. Paul, of course, is talking to men and women. They have already been called. They've already been called by Christ. They have seen the light. They have tasted and seen that he is good, but they may be reverting. We're not exactly sure what's going on, but he's saying it because at least it's possible. It is at least possible to stop living in the light of the mercy and the joy of the king. To go back, as C.S. Lewis might say, playing with mud pies in the slums. I've used this quote a lot. It's one of my favorites. He says this, 
It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So here's my question to you this morning right now before we move on. It's in the air around us right now. Are you walking with the Lord in a way that shows that you have seen him and known him and believed him? Or are you continuing to walk in the darkness, to live outside of the knowledge that God is real and that we must live our lives in accordance with his gospel? Are you living in the futility of your mind? May we be alive to him. Okay, here's the second point. Callous in sin. Paul keeps on going. Verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. And here's where we're picking up now. Because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to every practice, to practice every kind of impurity. So we saw that before. Verse 18 says that the Gentiles are alienated from the life of God. Now, what is the reason for that? The reason for that is that they are ignorant. There is an ignorance in them. They do not know any better. But there is a deeper reason beneath the ignorance, and that's where we need to hone in on right now. It says that they were ignorant due to their hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. Now, that word hardness, it comes from the Greek word porosis. Sounds like a disease. Probably might as well be porosis. It means kind of a a mental stubbornness, an unwillingness to learn. But then Paul adds that word heart there, so he puts those two things, a, a mental unstubbornness of the heart. Now put those two things together. He is talking about the whole person's inability, or there's no desire to, seek what is outside of themselves. Paul is saying that alienation from God is ultimately stem, ultimately stems from a spiritual condition. We are hardened to His love. We are hardened to His grace. We are hardened to hear His call to walk in line with His holy law and will. And so here's the point. This is kind of a pathology of sin. He is saying ultimately that our hard hearts are the reason that we sin. When our hearts are hard, we are alienated from Him. Therefore, it is so easy to walk away from Him. When our hearts are hard to the life of God, we do not live for Him, but we run away from Him. God, our hard hearts. Why would we go to Him? And so we go every other way. Verse 19, They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality greedy to practice, and every kind of impurity. It's not just that our hard hearts make us walk away from God. Our hard hearts actually make it harder for us to come back to Him. And it's a vicious cycle. Let me try to explain. So that word callous is probably the most important word here in this sentence. Callous, a calloused heart. 
It means that the heart is not like a locked vault. It's not like a locked door. It is like calloused over skin. And you know what I mean by that. When you start playing a guitar or violin for the first time and you hold it, the hardest time is that first few weeks because it's really painful. If you haven't saw my fingers, you would see calluses on the ends of my fingers. Well, what do they exist for? To protect my fingers. To protect my fingers from the pain of the strings on them. Paul's saying it's something like that, that our hearts have been calloused over. They are trying to protect us from something. Now, calluses might be the defense for our bodies against overuse. It covers them over. It makes the, thin, the, the skin thicker. But the problem is that it does not work the same way with our hearts. We are becoming deadened to God himself. They are not good. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. The more we sin, the more calloused we become. It's a vicious cycle. The more we sin, the more calloused we become. They have become callous and have given themselves up. Our hearts are hard, we sin, and our hearts become even harder. The problem, though, becomes we need to keep on feeling. We need to keep on feeling something. We need to fill our hearts, and so we have to sin more. But now, because our hearts are that much harder, we must sin that much more to feel. To feel, maybe we could use this expression, a sin high. We must sin more and more deeply. Sin begets deeper and darker sinning. Again, it is a vicious and dangerous cycle. The Bible often talks about the word sin as though it is fire. You cannot actually touch it without getting burned. In other words, for us, you cannot keep on sinning and maintain the status quo. The more you sin, the more you need to sin. The more you sin, the harder your heart gets, the less you want God, and the more you need and want deeper and darker things. And so here's the scary thought of this morning. Even as Christians, we can fall into sin like this. We are living in an already not yet reality. Maybe you've heard that term before. An already not yet reality. Yes, we are already Christ. We are already His. He has saved us. He has conquered sin in our lives, in our hearts. But then there's this not yet part. We are not fully restored. We still at some level have the ability to sin. And if we are not careful, we too may become calloused over in sin. And so I want to say this very clearly. This is super serious. Marriages are on the line. Our witness to Christ is on the line. Our very souls may be on the line. This is a dark point, I know, but it, it is meant to sober us. Paul's words here are strong. They are meant to wake us up to the reality that even though we have known and seen and tasted God, yet we can fall from Him. Yet we could ruin our lives. May we be sober to this reality that we can be calloused in our hearts. Now here's the last thing. Looking up. 
renewed in Christ. The last point is renewed in Christ. Look at verse 19. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to, be put, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. This whole section, verses 17 through 24, is to try to get Gentiles to stop living like Gentiles. Verse 22, put off your old self. Put it off. Take it off like they are clothing, like they are soiled, wetted down clothing. Take it off. And then there's the other half of the equation. Put on the new life. Put it on. Put on the new self. Create it after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Now, I think that Paul is saying to strive. He's saying to strive, put on the new nature you have been given in Christ. Now, we need to make clear that what we're talking about, this is not like earning. You don't earn your new creationism. You don't earn that. You already have it. Paul is saying, I think that it is more like craning. It is more like craning. Have you ever seen a plant near a a window? And if you push it to the side, certain plants will literally physically crane themselves towards the sun. They are trying to get more of the sunlight into themselves. We are like that. We live holy by the Son of God's grace. Our nourishment is the Son of His love and guidance and discipline and joy. We must live as though that is already true because it is. We must crane to get into the light of God's grace and mercy so that we will grow. That is how we keep from becoming calloused over in our hearts that we seek true nourishment. Now, how do you do it? How do you do that? Now, we could say all sorts of things right here, and we say them all the time. Get into community. Worship every Sunday. Worship throughout the week. Confess your sins to one another. But I want to hone in on what Paul is saying here over and over again. He is talking ultimately about our minds here. He wants us to attend to our minds. Just listen to the, the, what he's talking about. In verse 17 he says, Now this I testify in the Lord that you must not, no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. Verse 18. But that is not the way you learned in Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and, what does it say, were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. Now the most important verse, verse 23. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. There it is. Paul's hope his prayer, his exhortation as that the new Christians would be fully transformed. That is what it means to be renewed. To be renewed in the spirit of your mind means to be completely internally transformed. 
that the spirit of our minds is not just our heads, it's not just our knowledge, it is the core of who we are. Our motivations, our subconscious, our ego, our feelings, everything. Throw anything in there. That is who we are. We must take this. We must be taken it, taken by Christ and changed, converted, transformed. Here's how one commentator put it. The pattern, motivation, and direction of our thinking needs to be totally changed. The renewal of the spirit of our Minds. And I want to tell you that the greatest way to do that, the greatest way to do that, just to speak very practically, is to meditate. It's to meditate. Now, maybe a little bit different than you have understood the word meditation, so let's unpack that a little bit. So Luther, Martin Luther, long time ago, reformer, he gave some of the greatest practical advice in theology and practice to his barber. That's right, to his barber. His name was Peter Bezkendorf. That's right, Bezkendorf. Peter Bezkendorf. And his barber wrote to him. He was struggling in his prayer life, and he said, Martin Luther, you're the man. Tell me how to pray. And Luther wrote back to him, and he said, you must meditate. You must not just read. You must not just pray. You must bring the two together. You must meditate. We hear this word in Psalm 1. It says that blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. That is different than just reading it. This is something different than just praying to the Lord. For Luther, meditation meant a coming together of head and heart. It is not just taking in knowledge. It was not just communing with God. It was, it was both head and heart together. And so he gave him this advice. I love this. He said that for him, meditation was like a garland split into four equal parts. Let me read them to you. Maybe you can write these down. He said this, when you ever approach a text, do these four things. Instruction, thanksgiving, confession, and prayer. Or you could say it this way, be instructed, be thankful, confess. And pray. Let's just unpack each of these. Instruction. So when you come upon a command or teaching in the Bible, you look at it and you ask yourself this question. What is this text teaching? What is it teaching me? In other words, what did they, this writer intend for his original readers to get from this? Do I understand what this command requires? Now move on. Thanksgiving. What in this command, in this teaching, can I thank God for? What about this command leads me to praise Him and thank Him? Okay, instruction, thanksgiving, now move into confession. You ask, how have I failed to live up to this text, this teaching, this command? How must I repent as I begin to understand this? And the last one he said was prayer. Prayer. You must pray earnestly that God would take what you have learned to make it so. May he change your heart in accordance with this teaching. It's meditation. It's not just reading. It's not just prayer. It is bringing the two together. Tim Keller says that the Bible should come up and be like a fist that clocks you in the face sometimes. 
Listen to Martin Luther. He says, this is how I did it with Exodus 23. You know what Exodus 23? It's the command that you shall have no other gods before me. He writes this. First, I earnestly consider that my heart must not be built upon anything else or trust in anything, be it wealth, prestige, wisdom, might, piety, or anything else. That's the instruction. Second, I give thanks for His infinite compassion by which He has come in such a fatherly way, unasked, unbidden, and unmerited, and has offered to be my God, to care for me, to be my comfort, my guardian, my help, and my strength in my time of need. He gets all that from, you shall have no other gods before me. And then he confesses. I confess for having fearfully provoked his wrath by countless acts of idolatry. I repent of these and ask for his grace. And then finally he prays. I pray preserve my heart so that I shall never again become forgetful and ungrateful, that I may never seek after other gods, other consolation on earth or in any creature but cling truly and solely to Thee, my only God. Can you do that? Can you renew your very Bible reading? Maybe you have given it up entirely. You don't ever approach the Word. Can I ask you to pick it up today? Just a few verses. A few verses tomorrow. A few verses the next day. If you're sporadic, can I ask you to take the next step in discipline, in seeking the Lord? I'm not asking you to read in such a way that you've got to take a test, but that you would read for life. Meditate. We are trying to change our minds. We are trying to have the renewal of our spirits happen completely, fully. Now understand this in the very end. When we take our minds to the Lord, when we bring our souls near, we are truly trying to become like Jesus. And we do so by seeing him there. We do so by seeing Jesus. Verse 20, that is not the way you learn in Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. In everything that you do, friends, I want you to see Jesus. It's interesting, Paul goes, he uses that word Christ right there in verse 20, and then in verse 21, he changes it to Jesus. Now that may be nothing, but most commentators think that he intended to do that on purpose. Why? Christ is the idea, Jesus is the man. He wants them to know the idea of the Messiah, that you need the saving grace of Jesus. But he does not want you to know that apart from knowing that it comes in a real man. That Jesus Christ, the historical Jesus Christ is real. He is still real. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And you can commune with him. And so when you meditate, when you are struggling in your sin, you see Jesus Christ. When we are spiritually dry, Set your mind on Jesus. When you are tempted to sin, set your mind on Jesus. When you want to grow well away from your former self and continue to take on your new self, set your mind 
on Jesus. This is why he died, friends. He died that we may fully and finally enter into the life of God. The greatest of all things. The joy of all joys. May it be so for you. Let's pray. I pray that we see Jesus right now. I pray each person here who has their eyes closed, whether they are far from you or whether they are close, I pray that you would reveal yourself in your Son, Jesus Christ. He is not an abstract thought. He is not a guy who lived for 33 years back then and now is dead. Jesus lived and died and was raised to new life. And then he ascended on high. He is the ruler over all things. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is our Savior and our brother. May we see him now. He is calling us out of the darkness and into the light. He's calling us away from our old selves into new life. He's saying, take off what was there and continue to put on what I have given you by very righteousness. May we see him now. God, I would pray for this church that we would be a church of the Bible, of the book, of your holy word, and not just see it as something that we must do to check off a box, but something that we would see as life-giving. For those who are far from you this morning, who do not know you at all, God, I pray that you would continue to walk down the path with them, speak into their lives, into their hearts. May they know that you are there, that you are real. May they give themselves over to you by confessing their great need. May they know the comfort and the peace of your presence and your salvation. And God, now as we sing of your Son, Jesus Christ, would this place be full of you. Would we continue to have vision of your Son? He is our life. He is the greatest of all things. In Jesus' name. Amen.